This week on Retronauts, we are all tuna heads. everybody, it's me, Bob Mackey, uh, here for Retronauts Live, episode 39, and today's topic is Maniac Mansion, and let me um, get right to our guest. Who is to my right? Oh, me, Terry Wen, over at 1UP as well. And uh, who else do we have? Uh, Ron Gilbert. Hmm, are you new here, Ron? Uh, yeah, I just started. Okay, no, Ron, tell us who you are for real, <laughs> in case uh, anyone doesn't know. Yeah, I was the uh, co-creator and designer of Maniac Mansion, and also the uh, creator and designer of Monkey Island. Okay, awesome. Yeah, if you don't know who Ron Gilbert is, you do now, and if you didn't before, well, shame on you. This is Retronauts, you should know this. But anyways, we're not going to do any of our other segments today because we have Ron Gilbert in the studio, and it's the 25th anniversary of Maniac Mansion. Not exactly, I'm not sure what the exact release time frame was or if there was a specific date but um it's been 25 years i don't know ron what's, do what's you... a formal birthday in ron's mind yeah like do you have like a, a day on your calendar or you know i i actually don't know for maniac mansion hmm. i actually don't know that i know i know what it is for monkey island but i can't actually remember whether i assume we probably released it sometime around christmas so it probably came out in september okay or so but yeah, you know, I don't know. Right. And we're talking about the original Commodore 64 right. Maniac Mansion. It's the, um, it's the true version. Right. That's what you consider the the, the holy it's, grail. It's the definitive, okay. yeah. You've I'm, never you've never played Maniac Mansion if you haven't played it on the Commodore 64. Wow, those are strong words. Uh, <laughs> I grew up with the NES version. I'm not sure how you feel about that, but I'm sure a lot of our audience did. And that's how I sort of uh, broke my way into adventure games because a lot of kids, I'm sure... It's a gateway drug. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maniac Mansion was for the NES because uh, a lot of families at the time, PCs were kind of expensive in 1990 when the NES game came out. So that was our first taste of like, wow, this is what computer games are like. And then we didn't see much more of that until maybe like the CD-ROM era. But that's not important. Where do you want to start, Ron? There's so much to talk about, Maniac Mansion. I'll start anywhere you want. Okay, please <laughs> let us know, uh, how did this idea come to fruition? Because from what I heard, um, it started with just the idea of a house, and you really weren't really sure what to do with the house. Can you go into any detail about that? Sure. Uh, the thing started out, uh, when I, I started working at Lucasfilm, and I was I was hired on as a, as a contractor, and my initial job was to do the Commodore 64 ports of uh, Rescue on Fractalus, no, of, uh, of Coronas Rift and uh, Ball Blazer from the Atari mm. 400 to the Commodore 64. So I was hired on as a contractor to do those, and I, you know, really, really wanted to stay on in a full-time position, and I had, you know, Gary Winnick and I had become good friends in my time, and I kind of figured, well, if I can get some kind of a game going with, you know, Gary, that's probably a really good way that, you know, maybe they'll hire me on full-time. So that was kind of the you know, the initial impetus for getting a game going, which was, you know, just my own self-interest in being hired. But, uh, you know, uh, Gary and I just started talking about it. And, you know, we liked, we were both really big fans of, you know, comedy horror movies. And uh, so we kind of thought, well, we should really do a game about this. And, you know, so we kind of got the weird haunted house and the strange family and, the you know, the teenagers that go into it. It was all just, you know, very cliche. Right. And, and it was uh, of that era where there were a lot of, like, slasher movies or, like, you know, people breaking into your house and killing you movies. Uh, anything yeah, specific very, uh, yeah. that sort of inspired yeah. Maniac Mansion? Because I, I know you mentioned Reanimator, just, you know, the mad scientist idea. But right, right. was it sort of a satire of the 80s horror movement or was it sort of just a product of that era where you were kind of picking up on the same themes do you think i think it was more of a product of that area okay. although although we were trying to be funny we didn't right, we right. didn't want to make a serious you know scary movie about some teenagers that go to a house uh, we wanted to be funny so you know there were there were, was a lot of humor into it and i think it became you know a little bit satire just because of the humor that gary and i had and wanted to inject in it I think I've read somewhere that the house might have been inspired by Skywalker Ranch. Is there truth truth to that? Or oh, absolutely, okay. yeah. The house, the house, the the mansion. Uh, Gary really did base that on. It was called the main house. It was this big, giant, white mansion that looked a lot like 
the one in Maniac Mansion that uh, you had George's office and stuff. But I also, uh, you know, you're saying it's supposed to be funny, not necessarily scary. Did you did you think that it would ever scare kids? Because as a kid, I was scared by the game at first because it seemed to break every rule of being a kid. Like you can't go in people's houses, you know, adults are chasing you, things like that. So being chased by an NPC in a game at that time was something sort of new where you were powerless in that situation. I mean, did you ever think that a child would find that frightening or was it all just like you're thinking with an adult mindset going well, into the game? Our goal wasn't to set out to make something that was scary and, and scare people, but there certainly are moments in it that we knew and wanted people to have a little bit of a, a, of a jump. You know, when Nurse Edna is in the kitchen, you walk into the kitchen and she's just there, you know, by the refrigerator and there's a little bit of a jump when that happens. And when the characters, you know, ring the doorbell and they start downstairs, you know, there's a little bit of a, oh my God, I left somebody in the entryway. I got to get him out of there because Weird Ed's on his way. Right, right. So there's a little bit of that stuff that we wanted to do. Okay. Uh, yeah, please continue. I'm sorry we interrupted with questions. Uh, just like the the inception of Maniac Mansion started with a house. Uh, you got hired by Lucasfilm Games. Um, where, where from then did the idea, you teamed up with uh, Gary Winnick, who was an artist? Yeah, Gary, okay. Gary was an artist, and he and I you know, really created the thing and designed the thing together. And, well, you know, we started with this this house and this kind of comedy horror thing. And we really weren't sure what the game was supposed to be. It really didn't have a genre at that point. It was just kind of a game in a house with some teenagers. And, you know, we really weren't sure what it was. And it wasn't until, uh, I think, Christmas that year, I had went to visit my uh, aunt and uncle. And my cousin was playing King's Quest One on his uh, Radio Shack computer. And that was really the first time I'd ever seen a graphic adventure. I knew adventure games. I loved the text adventure games. But the first time I'd kind of see them married with the graphics. And I was really taken with that. And it was kind of at that moment that it all clicked inside my head. And I knew, you know, that Maniac Mansion, it just it needed to be an adventure game. Hmm. And once that kind of thing fell into place, the rest of it was, was much, much easier. Because now there was a framework, you know, that we could hang this game on, uh, you know, as, a, as an adventure game. Right. So, uh, where did the characters come from exactly? Were you looking for, did they come before the puzzles, or did the puzzles come first, and then you decided these characters need to have these skills to, you know, work around the puzzles? Like, we have Wendy, who is the writer, Michael, who can develop photography, I'm sorry, develop photos, uh, Bernard, who can fix anything. Um, did the characters come first, and then the puzzles, or was it the other way around? A lot of the characters came first. I mean, some okay. of it was a little bit, you know, working back and forth. But we had a we had several characters that never made it into the game. You know, so we had, I can't remember the exact number, but I think there were like nine or ten uh, characters, and some of them we just cut because you know, we realized we really didn't have an interesting, you know, ability for them. What you know, what was their 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 thing that they could do that the others couldn't? Hmm. And so we just kind of cut the ones that didn't, uh, you know, didn't really weren't kind of building up the way we wanted. Okay, and um, you you said you saw um, your you said your nephew or uh, cousin, cousin cousin playing uh, King's Quest one, and uh, you were frustrated. You, you you played it yourself, right? right. Uh, okay, and you were frustrated by just um, playing the game was more like profiling the designer than it was you know trying to figure out puzzles. And I noticed in Maniac Mansion um, there are deaths in the game, and it was probably the last LucasArts game where there would be deaths that weren't basically Easter eggs. But even so, in Maniac Mansion they were Easter eggs in a way because. As Terry and I discovered on, um, well, not discovered, but like as we showed our audience on uh, our live stream, that you basically have to try really hard in order to die in the game. Mm -hmm. um, was that, I mean, did you want any deaths at all, or, or were you still of that mindset like the player has to die? It's just part of the genre, it's just part of what a video game is. There has to be a death state. Was that something that you felt was mandatory? Because, like I said, um, you do have to try pretty hard in order to die in that game. And um, a lot of the deaths are kind of happy accidents. You're like, oh, I shouldn't microwave, uh, you know, nuclear uh, water. Or I shouldn't, um, you know, stay in the pool as someone else fills it. But were these were these uh, just considered just mandatory for a video game? Or at, even at that point, were you like no deaths, but it's still you, you still felt obligated in some way? Yeah, the philosophy of, of not having uh, death in an adventure game wasn't something... That had occurred to me then. Okay. So Maniac Mansion, the deaths in that game, that was, you know, just what games did. You know, if you failed, you died. And we really didn't think, you know, one way or another about it. We did we did try to make sure that the puzzles, that things felt logical, that, that if you died, it wasn't, 
completely confusing to the player about why they died. At least they could die and then look back on it and go, okay, I understand what I did wrong, mm-hmm. and I should you know, not do that again. But, uh, but that whole philosophy about there really should be no death in adventure games, that, that was something that really came about with, with Monkey Island. Right, and um, in case our listeners don't know, in that game you basically have to stand or water for 10 minutes in one section of the game in order to die, and right. even then... Um, it turns into a joke, basically. Right, like, all right. your commands turn into like rod or float or whatever, and <laughs> right, it's, right. it's pretty silly. But yeah, um, and Ron is actually famous for uh, not only creating Maniac Mansion with a few other folks from Lucasfilm Games, but also coining the term cutscene, and that was actually part of the scripting language, like cut hyphen scene, yes. when you would actually mm-hmm. move to another, another uh, you know point of view in the house or another perspective in the house. And in Maniac Mansion, just playing through it again, I realized like the cutscenes aren't just there for you guys to be flowery with language or like, oh, I thought of something funny. It's like, they all inform the player of something they should know. Like, the characters are going to be going here. The characters are telling you something you might need to know about later in the game. Uh, what I want to know is, um, what do you think about the current form of cutscene and how do you think they could be better implemented based on you know your own experience as a game designer? Just branching out from Maniac Mansion. Yeah, cutscenes are kind of interesting um, because you know, personally, when I'm playing a game, I find them to be incredibly annoying. Mm-hmm. I really, I don't, I don't like, you know, when control is taken away. And I think, I think for a, a person playing a game, having control is kind of like a drug. You know, you like to have control. You like to be in control. And when it's taken away from you, you kind of react negatively to it. So, so you know, cutscenes should really just be kept to a bare minimum, and they should be you know, very entertaining and, and very short. It's kind of my philosophy uh, on those. And one of the uh, you know innovations in um, Monkey Island, and we and we started this with the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade adventure game which was uh, things that we called dialogue puzzles, where you would go and you would talk to the player and you'd get, you know, four or five different choices that you and you'd pick them and then, you know, uh, that person would respond and you'd get some more choices. A lot of those were really a response to the cutscene problem because when you go into a cutscene and there's a bunch of expository that has to happen, I really didn't want to sit there for, you know, two or three minutes and watch the scene play out between, you know, Guybrush and the shopkeeper. But by, by doing the dialogue puzzles, we, we kind of had the ability to, to do cutscenes, but the player could interject every so often on nice little beats, and they could choose things to do, and they could you know read four funny jokes before they chose one. And that was kind of a response of just breaking up the cutscenes a little bit. Hmm. I never thought of it that way. Uh, Terry, did you have any questions? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, I'm just, just like taking just over this. Just related to the cutscene idea, like, I'm just curious, what was a cutscene, I assume the cutscene was there, you kind of made it to solve a problem maybe you saw back when making Maniac 1. Like, did you, were you somewhat annoyed at the way, like, other adventure games like King's Quest would tell their story? Like, what was the cutscene designed to solve at the time, if you remember? Well, back then, you know, one of the things that Gary and I kind of wanted to do with Maniac Mansion was we wanted it to be a little bit, you know, like an interactive movie. We wanted it to be like you were in this movie and you were you were experiencing it and you were playing along with it. And the, and the cutscenes uh, came a little bit from that. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're watching a movie, uh, most movies, it is cutting away to different yeah. people to get different perspectives and different points of view. And the cutscenes really came from that, is that uh, we didn't want it to be a game where the camera just stayed locked on this player the entire time, but there were other things that were interesting that were going on in the mansion, and we wanted to cut away and show those things. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if this is reaching, but uh, replaying Maniac Mansion, I was just thinking, it kind of reminded me of the movie High Noon, where uh, time is ticking away towards this faded moment, and you have, and the, the protagonist has to stop it, but things are still happening around him that he has no control over. I don't know if that's just an artsy-fartsy connection I'm making yeah, myself. Yeah, that was, that but, was a pretty uh, good connection, though. You set out to make the High Noon the video game. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to add that to the Wikipedia. The Citizen Kane of High Noon video games. <laughs> yeah, um, and I was actually just thinking about that, where... Um, Maniac Mansion does take place in a limited time frame. And is, is there a time limit to the game? I forget. Can you actually um, 
just uh, not do anything and have uh, Doctor Fred take over or yeah, Meteor there's, take there's over. no time limit unless you unless you start some events. Okay, uh, that's but, right. But there is no actual time limit. That's right. Uh, did that cause any difficulties? Um, just the idea that a sequence of events is happening around the characters that you know might make for some programming difficulties or story difficulties where all these certain events are happening that affect not only where characters are but um, you know the power goes off in the house at one point when you have to um, when Doctor Fred shuts down the power for some reason I forget what it is or um, the package gets delivered. Uh, were you thinking about the difficulties of those? those possibilities before you started it or did you just want this game to take place over this i don't know how long of a time frame it is it feels like a night and it should be a night i mean right. it, is, can, it is essentially a night we should yeah. discount the fact that there's some crazy post office service in uh, the world of maniac <laughs> right, mansion right, but right. um so I'm, I'm willing to overlook that 30 minute delivery right um so yeah did that, did that cause any problems or did you set out you know specifically to um have a game take place in, over a time frame because it feels like very few games do that now because it's very difficult. And uh, especially then at the time, because technology was so limited, it seems like it would even be a trickier proposition. No, I think with Maniac Mansion, we absolutely had no idea what we were getting into okay. when we started this game. <laughs> That's what it seems like. Yeah, I mean, no, we didn't. Yeah. We had no idea. Uh, you know, a lot of things, like you mentioned, uh, just seemed really simple. It's like, yeah, you ring the doorbell and, you know, Weird Ed runs downstairs. How hard can that possibly be? Right. But, but you're right. It, it, it brought up this whole series of issues. Well... He's heading downstairs, and you forgot one of the kids, and that kid is in the entryway. And now we have to deal with Weird Ed catching the kid in the entryway. And, well, what happens when that happens? And this happens. And what happens if you take things out of the refrigerator? And it was it was neat because I felt that some of it, like, we were creating this working world. You know, I wanted the refrigerator to open, and I wanted you to be able to take things out of it and, 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 and carry things around. And I wanted the radio to work, and I wanted the phonograph to work. I wanted all these things to work like it was an actual working world, but that's you know, really, really complicated. And mm -hmm. I mean, I, I honestly say we got in way over our heads with that game. Yeah, uh, I think you said on your GDC presentation from last year, it was a two-hour, two-hour, two-year uh, <laughs> development cycle. Yeah, it was about and, that. And uh, that was probably pretty absurd for the time, correct? I mean... Um, yeah, the first year was mostly me getting the scum system up and running mm -hmm. because we started into it and it became... Uh, quickly aware that there was no way that I was going to be able to write this whole thing in 6502 assembly language. Right, it was right. just too big and too complicated. And and somebody, uh, Chip Morningstar, a guy that worked there with us, you know, he suggested a scripting language. So I spent the first year really getting the whole scum system working. And then the, the second year was actually getting the game itself working. It seems like, uh, I mean, I guess Lucasfilm Games is kind of a startup, you know, based off of George yeah, Lucas wanting to branch out into um, that sort of entertainment. Um, I guess they placed a lot of faith in you guys then, just letting you get used to the technology for a year. Was that true? Or was there, was there pressure? Like we need to make a, we need to make a product. We need to, there wasn't a lot of pressure in that regard okay. uh, back then to get things done. Or if there was, it was well shielded from all of us in the games group. When I started at Lucasfilm games, there were seven people there. Mm -hmm. So it was a very, very small group of people. And we really did have this mandate from, from George to, to just do interesting, you know, great things. And we really took that to heart in a lot of ways with the stuff that we built back then. Hmm. Uh, Terry, did you have a question? Uh, I was just kind of curious, circling back to how you find a lot of cutscenes just kind of annoying and that they go on too long and so forth. Are there any actually within any recent game that actually stand out as actually not annoying? Like, are, what are the good cutscenes of late for you, if any? Or are just, is just, <laughs> or it's the, is it concept just kind of worn out for you by now? I can't really think of anything that jumps out at me as 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 really good. If I'm playing a game and it gets to that cutscene non-interactive moment, it's, You're just like, no. I'm gonna you know would, go refill my soda pop or would something. Would you equate um, like a QTE as the modern equivalent of um, selecting different dialogue phrases? Just someone trying like to like a way to have player input. Yeah, during. at least yeah. something. I mean, I don't think it's as as interesting, but it feels like that's the modern equivalent of. Um, you know, yeah, some, of, the, some of those things do provide that same kind of mechanic that you're kind of breaking up this uh, this sequence with a little bit of, of, of interaction. Right. One of the things for me that work, that makes, uh, you know, the dialogues work really well, we didn't have them in Maniac Mansion, but makes them work really well in, in Monkey Island, and you know, I put them in Death Bank as well, is that they're funny. 
A lot of uh, dialogues, you get into these dialogue tree systems in a serious game, and I don't find them as interesting because they're not, they're not really funny. And one of the great things about the dialogues in, in Monkey Island uh, was that you would talk to somebody and then you would get four dialogue choices. And that gave us the opportunity to instantly tell four jokes mm. because you didn't even have to select the four things, but just you got to read four funny right. responses and you instantly got to tell four jokes. And and if somebody just chose one of them, it didn't really matter because we already told the joke. And you didn't really need a morality system like Mass Effect because you could make your guy brush a total jerk by yeah. choosing the joke uh, response every time. Yeah, a lot I mean, of people did that. It kind of had to be. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Uh, I also wanted to know that I I know like Maniac Mansion was a sort of awesome piece of technology, especially for the C64 at the time. When you look at other games for the platform, we had over 19k of RAM. That's amazing. (laughs) How did you do it? Um, I'm just wondering. uh, Comedy seemed to be the prevailing form of adventure game for a long time. Uh, What what do you think the reason behind that is? It was it just easier to sell a story with jokes? I think that adventure games in general helps if they're comedies because you're doing such ridiculous things you're going around the world you're breaking into people's houses you're taking everything you can find and stuffing it down your pants i think that just works really well in a comedy situation and and adventure games are asking players to do really ridiculous things because if they ask them to do realistic things there's so many things players want to do that are realistic that they can't right because there's a there's this box that the players are in and you can make that box be a lot uh, more palatable to players if if it's funny that's true and um i'm sure you even referenced the um old man murray article about why adventure games are dead mm-hmm. and it was the whole cat hair puzzle where right, right. it was a realistic world but you still had to do ridiculous adventure exactly. game stuff and i was just playing a game uh for the DS called Last Window, and you had to, um, for the puzzle, you needed one penny, and there was only one penny that existed in this game universe, and mm-hmm. this game was made in 2010, so it feels like, you know, right. that would make sense in, in like a funny adventure game, but not in a realistic one, so I see where you're coming yeah. from there. Um, yeah, I was playing uh, you know, one of the Sierra games back then, and there was, uh, I needed a pencil to solve a puzzle, and, and I, I was, for some reason, I was in New York at one point, and there was a pencil on someone's desk, and then I had to fly to L.A. at some point, and I needed a pencil, and I'm thinking, okay, there was a pencil on this guy's desk back in New York, and there's only one pencil in the entire world. What a tragic and it's universe. back in New York sitting on this guy's desk. Yeah. And that can be that can be played for humor. You could you could wrap that in a humorous situation and make fun of it and make jokes about it, and then people are accepting of it. Right, right. And yeah. uh, I think in Maniac Mansion it made more sense because uh, you needed um, two dimes and a quarter for the game, but you were trapped in that house. There right. was no getting away from it, so it did make sense there. Right, right. Yeah, b- b- boxing people into that house rather than letting them roam the whole world. You know, that that kind of thing also has a lot of uh, you know a lot of advantages when designing adventure games. Right. Uh, Terry, did you have anything? No, I, when you, he was just talking about just kind of, you know, surrounding puzzles and weird circumstances with humor, just kind of remind me of, I forgot exactly which Monkey Island was in, but I think the Monkey Wrench puzzle, I think. And right, right. any other game, I think it would be really weird convolute, but it was just such an absurd pun, like, oh, it's an actual Yeah, you know, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the people who translated that into foreign languages <laughs> oh my God, absolutely hated, hated us for that. <laughs> Uh, I want to get to some of the goofier questions, but we'll, we'll wrap back oh, around. Oh, now to, we're um, getting into the goofy. Oh, questions. Well, it's like uh, the monkey wrench was. Oh, you should have told me like, say the monkey wrench is open. Oh no, no, no! Uh, I'm that's, sure that's I'm, a very highbrow question. I'm sure yeah. Ron doesn't have much to add, but I'm holding uh, an NES copy of Maniac Mansion, the version I'm familiar with. But I did play the C64 version last night. Um, and on the cover of the cart and on the cover of the box, it says, "See the TV version on the Family Channel." <laughs> and I know Ron, you commented on this before, but. Um, and I don't blame you personally, but as a kid... Uh, it, it was all my fault. Oh actually. my god, Ron, why did you do it? <laughs> Eugene, no, it was Eugene Levy's fault. He created it. Uh, a lot of SCD, sorry, SCTV vets were behind the, the TV show for Maniac Mansion. I'm sure that's exciting for any fan of comedy. But um, as a kid, like, oh my god, there's a Maniac Mansion TV show? No way. And Terry, I think you told me yeah. the same story. You sit down to watch it. It has an opening that looks like Growing Pains. Uh, and then you're like, where, where are all the characters I love? And it's Dr. Fred, who's played by... Um, god, what's his name? Um, I don't know. God. Do I- do I need to take out my smartphone? And you might need to. Up? I have his name in my head, but I forgot it. Anyway, he plays a telegram guy at the end of Back to the Future too. Joe Flaherty, yeah, he's a great oh, comic oh, actor. But it's outside of that. It just was just it was just really bizarre. I mean, um, 
were you there when these changes were happening? I mean, I'm sure Lucasfilm game signed off. I'm sure you didn't have a lot of say over what they were doing and what they weren't doing. But um, did you see the changes happening in front of you? Or was it all just like one, like, okay, we took your idea and now it's like heartwarming family channel show for some reason. Like, how did that happen? Well, we saw all the changes happening in front of us, which I'm, made it 10 times as... Uh, you know, painful and humorous right. in, a, in a way, because the people that were developing the TV show, they uh, were in the same building that we were in. Mm. They were in the floor above us. So we would get a lot of, we didn't really have any input into what was going on, but we would get these memos that they would send down to Gary and I every so often. And the show started out to be fairly you know, fateful to, to the video game. And then week after week, these new memos would come down with one more thing that was taken away from the can, game. Can you talk at all as to what the show originally was? Because it seems like um, it wouldn't work if it was the kids breaking into the Edison's mansion every over week. And over yeah, and yeah. <laughs> because that, that was my question before the show. I even saw the show. I'm like, how could they do that every, every week well, or every day? Well, it's one night, right? Oh, okay. It's a show that lasted for four years. It's one night. It could be like 24. <laughs> That would be awesome. <laughs> Every episode is like another three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. There was more, at the very original thing, there was more interaction with Dr. Fred. And, you know, in Gary and I's head, there was this college that was in the town. And these kids came from the college there. So there was a little more interaction with Dr. Fred in this college that would kind of get this more steady stream of, you know, kids and interaction uh, between him, uh, you know, and, and, and that. So that's how it started out. Hmm. And then it just, it just kind of slowly, you know, we get a memo that says nurse edna is no longer called edna oh. you know and and i mean th- edna was, did not test well with our uh, yeah, 12 to 14 year olds I mean, gary the first couple of you know memos that came through gary and i like oh my god they're ruining this and then after a while it was just funny yeah i bet i mean the, because it was just funny that the next thing that they would go change on it yeah i mean even the wikipedia entry it says uh for the tv show it's like very loosely based on <laughs> yeah. in that they share a title and one character yep, yep. Uh, who may not be the same yep. so did did that experience with like the kind of the sausage factory nature of seeing how, how the TV side of things were doing it? Did that affect your perception of TV in general? As a result, I'm just kind of curious. Like, did you see how weirdly they were in trying to make your property and you just kind of swore off a of TV or anything? But by then, or no, not really, okay. not really. I don't, it wasn't really something that uh, you know had that big of an impression on me. Other than that, it was started out being sad and then turned into something of great comedy. I'm glad you're able to uh, turn that lemon into lemonade. Because, yes. Uh, yes, my therapist says I'm doing well. Uh, so. <laughs> that's good. question for you we talked about this earlier dave uh, loosely based on you dave's the main character of maniac mansion right. um miller dave miller dave miller dave has no special abilities what does that say about you ron <laughs> i'm just boring i'm Come on. you know average uh... ron's special ability is making awesome games but unfortunately that did not play it doesn't out. come out there's no yeah. puzzle in maniac mansion where dave has to make an awesome funny game yeah so he if doesn't so, really get to show his ability maybe 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 in one of the remakes they can add right. that in um the NES version that I played changed a few of the puzzles. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Um, did you know? Yes. Okay. Uh, how do you feel about that? Just um, I know one of the changes they made was when um, you need to get a quarter out of this envelope that you find. If you try to open it on, on your own, um, you ruin the envelope and you can't beat the game because you need it for a certain puzzle. Um, in the NES version, you just open the envelope and it's reusable. Mm-hmm. Was that an okay change in your in your book? Or? Yeah, some of that stuff was fine. Okay. There were some changes that made the game a little more playable that we probably would have done ourselves had mm-hmm. we really thought about it. We weren't masochists by any means, but having a game where you would do something and it screwed you and you had to load a save game. Yeah. That was kind of how, how it was played back then. That's what games did. So yeah. we didn't really think a lot about those things. And in retrospect, there are a bunch of things like that that would have been nice to go back and change so you couldn't put the game into an unwinnable state like that. Right. Um, would, now, thinking back on that, I know, I know it was a long time ago. Uh, are there any other changes you would have made um, to, the, to the game, like things that you just didn't have time to fix or things that, like, 
if you play the game again, do they just really stick out to you? Like, oh man, I wish I could have caught that in time. Anything like that? Or do you feel like it's, 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 it should be presented how it is today? There's a thing, like you mentioned with the envelope, there, there's a way that you can get all three characters stuck into the dungeon and mm. there's just nothing that you can really do. And I think the thing that bothered me the most about, about that stuff is that you could get the game into an unwinnable situation and not know you'd right. gotten the game into an unwinnable situation. So you would then play for the next three hours not realizing that you needed the envelope or you needed the thing that you just microwaved or whatever. And that's something I would definitely want to change. And I've often thought about about that, if if uh, you know Lucasfilm remade uh, did a remake of uh, Monkey Island a couple of years ago, and I've often thought, well, if if they ever remade Maniac Mansion, it would really be fun to go in and fix all those things. So there weren't all those weird dead ends, and there wasn't no death, and and all these things were just kind of fixed and gone. But then I think about, well, maybe I don't really want to do that. Maybe the game does need to be just exactly what it is mm-hmm. because that's uh, you know more interesting in some level. Have you ever played the, uh, there's the most, uh, I think the best remake of the game has been, uh, came out around 2004. I think it was made by a team of German fans. Maybe they weren't German. For some reason, there's a strong, like, German... If they're adventure game fans, there's yeah. a good chance they're German. <laughs> I don't know where, what, how that happened. Do you know, like, where that comes from? I just, it's like... I, I don't know. I mean, all I know is that, uh, you know, Monkey Island sold, like, ten times as many copies in Germany hmm. than it did anywhere else. And how do you sure. translate Monkey Wrench into German? <laughs> <laughs> right. Germans love, like, you know, simulations and hardcore PC things and the likes. Like, I wouldn't be surprised that, you know, just PC games in general have always been doing really well in Germany and... I just it just made me remember how it was Germany that like all the weird RPGs where you could contract tetanus and the like came oh, from over yeah. there. Like they're just really about like crazy details and weird leaps of logic at times and mm. whatnot. So maybe that's why adventure games go both good and bad. Like they have weird puzzles of this like appeals to their like, oh we like tinkering with stuff. Okay, maybe. I was gonna say I thought they like punishment or something. Yeah. That's what it like. I guess maybe. I was trying to be say that in a slightly oh, nicer I'm sorry. Way. I, I I didn't mean to say it like that. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, have you? I mean, did we have you played uh, the remake? Uh, it was about it was about a decade ago. It I, was, I haven't um, played it. I've seen screenshots okay. and stuff from it, but I haven't actually played it. Okay, um, how do you feel about that? The fact that um, these games, like Maniac Mansion, uh, in every form, you can't play it unless you either pirate it or play a fan remake. Like, how do, how do you feel about that? And do you where do you think Maniac Mansion should be now if you had your choice? It's it's really too bad. That, that that is the case that you know if I want to play Maniac Mansion or you know well not not Monkey Island so much but if I want to play those I have to go pick up a copy of Scum VM and probably get the files somewhere I mean I have copies of Maniac Mansion at home but they're on five and a half inch floppy <laughs> disks there's no way I'm ever going to be able to read those files right right and it, it is too bad and I think that's a that's a big problem with any of this uh, you know digital stuff with games in general is they're just not going to be playable a movie we we can just translate it to format after format after format and it's a fairly painless process mm. you know to take a movie and you know put it on a blu-ray or put it on this or put it on that but games there's they're so intrinsically bound to that piece of hardware that they ran on it's a lot harder yeah and to just just kind of move them to these new platforms and, and keep them alive and you know we can watch movies made in the 1930s today and experience them exactly like people in the 1930s experienced them, but not going to be able to do that for games. Right, and not to speak ill of LucasArts, but basically it was fans who um, sort of made an effort to make these games playable again, like you said with ScumVM, which is an excellent emulator, now emulates almost everything, even like Sierra games. Right, blows me away. So, like, even the companies can't be helped to, you know, get these things out. I mean... Well, there's no money in it. That's. I was just going to ask you. Can I, you? And I don't mean that you know in a negative way necessarily, right. but but there's just there's no money in doing that stuff. So they're just not going to do it. And the fans uh, have picked up that ball in a lot of cases and wrote really good emulators for a lot of games. You know, not just uh, the Scum games, but for Nintendo games and everything. And I think it's a really valuable service that they provide. Hmm. And I know this might be getting too behind the scenes or maybe things you can't exactly talk about, but have you ever met with a LucasArts saying, um, I think you guys should re-release these? I mean, I know, I'm not sure how the rights to things work, but I'm sure that you don't get have a say in what they do with uh, the games that you no, worked on. No, I didn't think so. No. Um, have you ever talked with anyone and, you know, in an attempt to get these things back out? I know, um, you know, Monkey Island 1 and 2 saw some really, really awesome remakes, especially like uh, graphically, musically updated, and the originals are still there. Yep. Not the same with, with Maniac Mansion. 
Have you ever been uh, consulted or have had meetings or anything like that about Maniac Mansion? Any sort of remake or any sort no, of release? No, I haven't talked to them about Maniac Mansion. Okay. Um, I, I talked to some people a while ago, just you know, casually. We were you know sitting around at GDC just talking. And we've kind of talked about it, but uh, I haven't had any real conversations with them. Okay. They, they kind of tend to go through these these interesting waves. You know, they will they will get a, a president who is really interested in the stuff they did in the past and. And uh, wants to do things like the remates of Monkey Island, and and you know you think things are going great, and then they'll get a new president uh, in, and it's all Star Wars, uh, and then eventually that president goes away, and there's a new president comes in, and he's all interested in you know the past and the classic games, and you know, and then he goes away, and then it's all Star Wars again. Sounds so like, it's kind of catching yeah. them on the right you know crest of the wave at the right moment. Right. It seemed like at the at the time there was the um, um, Monkey Island one and two remakes, and they were releasing uh, Indiana Jones um, Temple. Sorry. Temple of Doom, Last Crusade, and Fate of Atlantis, uh, The Dig, and Loom, all on Steam, and then they just stopped. We, mm-hmm. we expected to see more, but then it's like, right. no, no more. Yeah. So I guess maybe that we have to wait for the next that, like wave yeah. of that, uh, that guy just got got booted in. Mm-hmm. I had to wait for like Star Wars guy to run his course. <laughs> the same thing happens in TV though. It's like uh, people, you know, they get a show, and then some new guy gets hired, and their show gets canceled because he doesn't right, like right. it. So yeah. That did not happen with Maniac Mansion, though. Somebody liked it a lot. <laughs> it ran for 66 episodes. I just read Wikipedia today. I only watched really, a few. Was it really? 66, wow. yeah. Are you serious? Uh, it seemed to be made for for a Canadian audience. Like, um... Lots I mean, of maple syrup and the stuff? The SCTV, <laughs> lots of accents, lots of maple syrup, lots of hockey. <laughs> the entire family is now a hockey team. And, uh, it's very hard I had no idea that it ran for that long. I think I've only seen like two or three episodes of okay it. yeah uh, it's not available on dvd as far as i know but uh <laughs> it, might, it might break your heart if you saw it i don't know i don't want to dredge that up but um one thing i wanted to ask you is that your obvious competitor at the time was sierra and their uh their games were very broad so we had king's quest which is you know medieval fairy tale land uh, we had police quest obviously police simulator space quest outer space uh, there was Hero Quest, which was fantasy medieval, and then there was Leisure Suit Larry, which was basically um, swinger, you know, single guy. They were pretty broad genres. Maybe Larry, not so much. But uh, Maniac Mansion, to me, and the following LucasArts games were very, very specific in their subject matter. Um, were you at all concerned that that would have been a problem sales-wise? Because you said Sierra was always kicking your butt as far as sales were going because they had that broader appeal. Like, someone would see, oh, King's Quest. Oh, I like, you know, fantasy stuff. I can grab that Maniac Mansion. What is this? I don't know what this is. So was that a concern of yours at all in the uh, development of this game? Just, like, the, the subject matter would be too obscure or too specific for a... Uh, for that small audience you're trying to cater to? Not for Maniac Mansion. Uh, Gary and I just were not thinking at that level okay. when we created that game. Uh, you know, and Sierra was really just, you know, King's Quest One at that point. So they really weren't a big competitor in our eyes uh, when Maniac Mansion was out. It really wasn't until the Indiana Jones game came out and, you know, we really started into and Loom and Monkey Island and all those that, that we really kind of saw them as a competitor uh, that, that we were trying to work against. But as you point out, they really did have a, a much bigger breadth of games than we did. And they always sold a lot more, hmm. which just drove us crazy that they were getting <laughs> all these sales. I'm sure but, you did. know, I talked to somebody at Sierra, you know, several years later, and, you know, their response was that we drove them crazy because they were selling more, but we got better reviews. Ah, uh, yeah. You're so the I think there was this, uh, yeah, there was this like, little rivalry going on. Was there like a, a like a uh, arms race as far as uh, GUIs were going? It's like, they, they got rid of the text parser, now we have to. It's right. like, they got rid of the verbs, now we have to. There was a little bit of I that. We would, we would play their games and we'd see what they were doing and go, oh, wow, they, they did that. That's kind of interesting. We're going we're gonna to have to go do that too. So mm. there was a little bit of that arms race thing going on. So you did keep an eye on what they were doing, not absolutely, just beyond yeah. King's Quest One. Okay, yeah, cool. absolutely. We played all their games and looked at what they were doing, and if they were, you know, innovating in any area, you know, could we have something that matched that, or were they doing anything better than we were doing? That kind of stuff. Hmm. Uh, Terry, did you have any uh, thing? Um, just this might this might be like buried in some other article, but it's just something I always wonder: what kind of inspired you to go into doing things like Putt Putt and Freddy Fish, like making like children's you know, adventure games, but more in like the guys are like children's enter- education or software kind of thing. Like, was there a specific thing that triggered that, or was it you just? Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. It was watching kids play Monkey Island mm-hmm. because they they were too young to read, so they didn't really know what was going on in the game. 
they knew enough to look at the verbs and figure out, well, that's open and that's close and that's push and that's pull. But they, uh, they, they were just fascinated with walking around these worlds and opening and closing doors and getting people to, you know, do little animations. And they didn't really know what was happening because they couldn't read. And that was really where I kind of looked in that. And I said, you know, if there were just pure adventure games that were geared for that four and five year old, they would just completely eat these things up because there was something very intrinsic about the, the what they were doing in the games that they really, really liked. Hmm. So that was really why all that happened and why that was just such a fascinating period of my life was to do all those things. I would like to know, Ron, is um, when you play through Manic Mansion, I'm not sure how recently you've done it. Every night. Every night <laughs> yes, of your I, life. I, uh, I speed run before bed. It's doable. I could. <laughs> I mean, I could do it. Um, what I want to know is what is your favorite team of kids to use in the game? Or what do you think is like the um, the best set of kids with like the best uh, abilities to go through the game? Well, I think the kids that you choose in Maniac Mansion is where, is kind of a, a mirror into your soul in mm, a way. You okay. know, everybody's very different on the, on the kids that they choose. And uh, I'm I'm a Bernard and Razor person. Oh, that's who I am. Yeah, that's oh. awesome. How about you, Terry? I was I, I did Bernard, but I think I also did um, the the guy with Vel pictures. Uh Michael. Michael. Yeah. That's and also, uh, Ron, uh, how do you answer the criticism that Jeff is useless? <laughs> Hot button issue, Jeff. I know he's a stoner, a surfer, whatever. He can only fix the phones, but so can Bernard. He uh, he is completely useless. Was that intentional? To make like uh, sort of like the deadbeat uh, wash up character, you know, burnout guy. Well, be at at the time, redundant. I I owned a swimsuit that looks exactly like the swim trunks that Jeff is wearing. Okay, <laughs> and so you know, my swim trunks were in the game, and there was just no way it was getting cut. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> And what's up with his shirt in the C64 <laughs> version? Is it supposed to be tattered, or is that a design? I couldn't tell when I was playing last night. Uh, Do you I remember? Think it was, I think it's tattered. Oh, okay, that's yeah. what I thought. Because you can kind of tell on the cover, but it's kind of hard to tell. Yeah. Secrets revealed, finally, <laughs> after 25 years. What I want to know... He is a useless character. Okay. I'm glad you think so, because yeah. a lot of people do. But in the NES version, has he has amazing music. And I'll, I'll lay right. some of that in right here. So, um, Ron, <laughs> they heard it, we didn't. <laughs> um, what I want to know is, uh, obviously your favorite version of the game is the C64 version, correct? Uh, right, it's the only true version of the game. The only true, do you like just deny the existence of anything else? Like, this, right. this is sitting right in front of me, Ron. Yes, no. You it's, signed it's it. It's not there. It's okay. not there. Okay, it's not there. I mean, have you played um, anything? any of the other versions? Can you can you comment on anything? Well, the PC version. I did the PC version. Okay, you worked on that. Yeah, okay. that was a port that Gary and I did after the, after the Commodore 64 version came out. And then the Commodore 64, like right after that game came out, 
just nosedived, mm. you know, in terms of popularity. So yep. we very quickly ported the scum system over to the to the PC, and uh, and Gary and I did the bulk of the work on getting the game ported over to the PC. And I know uh, Gary did most of the art, uh, or all of the art, correct? The okay, art. Um, did, I'm not sure if you can speak for him, but the, the PC version is pretty nice looking. I mean, mm-hmm. compared to the C64 version, did you guys look at uh, the format and add more details to the scenes, or were you using that format to sort of expand your original vision at all? I know the game didn't change at all, but you know the graphics did. Was that something that you were looking at when the format changed? Yeah, definitely. We had twice the resolution on the PC that we had on the Commodore 64, so you know, Gary went nuts, you know, being able to put shadows on things <laughs> and uh, have detail that wasn't there before, and we, we really liked it at the time. It was like, wow, this is just amazing looking. Hmm. Um, so you haven't played any other version of the game? I, I, I know. Okay. I, I joke, I joke. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I've what played I, the Nintendo version. I want to know, uh, how, how actually, did we talk about the Nintendo version? I mean, you said you like some of the changes. How, what do you think about the rest of the game, like how they presented it? Was it easy to play with the control pad? I mean, um... It was pre- it was pretty good given the limitations of the of, of a console and and that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I'm I'm actually actually very pleased with the oh, Nintendo cool. version. You know, given the restrictions that it had and the memory limitations and all those things. And I bet were you sort of happy to see something you made on what was then like part of Nintendo Mania at the time. I mean, ninety right. was a huge year for Nintendo. Yeah, con- consoles were that was really where consoles were just really really starting to take off and mm-hmm. and dwarf the PC business. So it was it was exciting to see it on there. And as you pointed out at the beginning of this. Most of the people that have played Maniac Mansion have played it on the Nintendo, not hmm. on the PC and on the uh, Commodore 64. Right. Have you heard of or played the Famicom version of the game? That, yes. Okay. Uh, this I had comes to think in, about that. That was a, yeah. <laughs> that was a little bit of digging back through the memories. I saw, I saw the gears turning. Synapses <laughs> just starting to fire. Nice and, pause. Uh, this question comes in from a buddy of the show, Nick Maragos, who actually played through uh, the Famicom version and like uh, did a kind of playthrough with screenshots on the internet. And um, he wants to know what the hell is up with that version. <laughs> it is Why, really. That, it had 256 color graphics. It did? Yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure it did. But all the characters were like little tykes. Yeah, I did. They were like little tykes. Yeah. Um, did you, did you, uh, did any of these fly by you at, at Lucasfilm Games at the time? Like, did they show you anything like this? Did you yeah, to- that, that, that version was really done. It was done by somebody else and right. we had very little, very little input because and control over that. And, and at that point, I was, you know, I was on to, I was either deep into uh, the Indiana Jones game or Monkey Island at that right. point. And I noticed in that game, um, one of your big points on the C64 version was scrolling. Mm-hmm. You worked your ass off to get scrolling in yes. the game. And mm-hmm. every room in the Famicom version is just one room, right. as plain as possible, with all the items you could possibly pick up, <laughs> right. just like there. Yep. It's yep. like the most simple playthrough. All right. Well, you're not responsible for that, and we thank you. No. <laughs> Nick wanted to know. Um, Terry, do you have anything? I have a few more no, questions to wrap up. Just okay. keep going. Um, okay, Maniac Mansion is one of the few replayable adventure games thanks to its multiple endings and characters, but this trend didn't last long as games grew more complicated and, you know, had to have voice work recorded and so on. Um, do you think developers should concentrate less on ancillary or superfluous content and more on games that can and should be replayed? Because it's way easier for me to replay Maniac Mansion than it is for me to replay Day of the Tentacle, which is a game I really like, or like Sam and Max, just because Maniac Mansion... There's more to play around with. I can think about, hmm, what ending do I want to get? What characters do I want to get? And um, it seems like right after that moment in time, that sort of uh, design was thrown out the window in favor of let's pour more resources into other things for a more controlled experience. It is one of the problems that adventure games have always had is they don't have a lot of uh, replayability. Like movies in that way. You, you, you don't just watch a movie over and over and over again. You might watch it and then you might go back and watch it a couple of years later and still enjoy it. And, and people do play adventure games like that. They'll you know play Monkey Island and then you know, play it again a couple of years later. But you don't sit down and play an adventure game every single night for four months you right. know, like you might do Call of Duty or anything like that. Yeah, and it, it is kind of one of the strikes against, uh, against adventure games. And when we were doing Maniac Mansion, we weren't consciously thinking about that these multiple characters give replayability and stretch game hours and all these other you know marketing concerns we were just putting a bunch of characters in a game because we thought it would be really fun to have a bunch of characters in a game and i think that was an accidental outcome of, of that but adventure games don't do that a lot today because it's just very expensive mm-hmm. they're very expensive to make because 
there's this bar for art and as you mentioned full voice audio and all of those things that go along with it and it's it's just, it's harder to 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 justify all these different endings and all these different paths through a game when you know players aren't necessarily going to see them all and i and i know that um you guys are pretty much left to your own on Maniac Mansion. They just trusted you. But as your teams grew... I think they just forgot we were there. I, <laughs> I, feel like I don't video think game trust guys. was actually okay. part of that equation. Uh, I guess their, uh, their forgetfulness helped you out. <laughs> yes. Um, was, it, was, the, was the atmosphere the same with uh, Monkey Island 1 and 2? Um, where they were, they were like, these guys know what they're doing. Or maybe, what guys, huh? We have video games? <laughs> uh, was it the same with those games or not? Yeah, for those it was. Okay. It was really after Monkey Island 2, or really halfway through Monkey Island 2, that, that things started to change. And people started to pay a lot more attention to what was being made and whether we should be making things. And, you know, that was a point that the, that the star Wars license uh, kind of came back to Lucasfilm because believe it or not, we couldn't make star Wars games when I was there. Right, so, right. so yeah, a lot more attention was starting to, to be paid for that. And because we were really were left alone to do what we wanted to do. I, I think we got some really good things out of that. Hmm. Um, one last Maniac Mansion question before I move on to my final points with you. Um, one thing I, was, I noticed last night when I was playing, I've never encountered this before. I never thought about it before I encounter it all the time. Does Dr. Fred ever travel through the mansion or does he just teleport to rooms? You program the game, sir. I want to know. <laughs> he teleports. I, I knew hate, it. I hate to pull the curtain aside okay. and just blow the fantasy. <laughs> all these secrets being revealed. He does. He does okay. not. He does not walk through the mansion. I was experimenting. I was like, can Dr. Fred catch me? He never has. <laughs> no. He shows up in other parts of the mansion. Okay. No, he Man. doesn't. Hope you have credibility after this, Ron. <laughs> In 1989, you wrote a sort of manifesto called Why Adventure Games Suck, and this sort of detailed your problems with um, not just Sierra, right, just like the industry just in general. adventure games in general. Yeah, yeah, just like they punished you unfairly. And there are a few points I want to bring up from this, and I want to see how you respond to them today, if that's cool. I mean, sure. I know you wrote this as, um, you know, a younger guy more than in 20 years 80s. ago. But um, here's one of your points. These are like three main points that you made in this, and I'm sure you know them, but I'll, I'll, I'll just read them back to you. Um, your first point is, the first thing I do is get rid of save games. If there have to be save games, I would use them only when it was time to quit playing until the next day. Um, some start using it as a defense mechanism only after being slapped in the face by the game a few times, and the rest just stop playing. So how do you feel about that today, I the role of save games? I still very, very much agree with that. Okay. Can you think of... Um, actually, that would, make you, that would make you just be calling people out. But uh, do, you, <laughs> do you find that happening today, though? Uh, like, people having to revert to old saves after messing something up? Or is, is that still an ongoing problem? It's not as much of a problem today because it's not necessarily a good thing. But games are... I don't know how to put this in the right <laughs> way. But Gingerly. Game, well, games are a lot, a lot, a lot simpler. I... A lot, of, a lot of games really treat the players in some way with these real kit gloves. That's that, true. That they have to be led around by the nose. And we can't let anything bad happen to the player. And if anything is confusing, we have to have a help system. We have to tutorialize it. And it does, it does prevent players getting into situations that are completely screwed because... Well, they've just been led there by the nose. There's no way they they can really screw themselves. Mm -hmm. It's not like all games are like this, but it is it is a, it is a big trend uh, w with stuff like that. And not having a save game, you really have to think about your game because you can't put people in situations where they can screw themselves. Because mm -hmm. if there's no save game to go back to, they would have to start the game over again. Uh, but but if if you really design things in such a way that they can go through these and just experience it, then then not having save games is a good thing because because the whole save game thing it's a meta gaming. You're kind of rewinding the thing and starting right. over, and you're meta gaming your way through it. And 
and I just feel that uh, you know you should just you should just play the whole thing and experience what it has. Hmm. And as a developer of games today, um, do you find yourself sort of begrudgingly adapting to modern standards? I mean, I, I read your blog, and you're you're grumpy gamer, so uh, <laughs> maybe I don't need to ask this question, but. Uh, like, how do you feel? I mean, I'm sure a lot of these are mandated by the publisher. Like, you must have a tutorial. You must do this. You must do that. Do you find yourself just biting your tongue, or do you try to fight back in any way? I, I fight back as much as I possibly can. Okay. Yeah. That's nice to hear. Um, okay, your second point. Uh, incredibly forward-thinking, especially for now. Uh, the second thing I changed would be the price. This was written in 1989. For between 40 and $50 a game, people expect to pay. Uh, excuse me, people expect a lot of play for their money. If I could have my way, I design games that were meant to be played in four or five hours, um, and it seems like that is the approach you're taking with, um, you know, Death Bank. So yep. you can obviously. I, do I even need to ask you about this? I mean, do you still feel this way? <laughs> I feel probably stronger about that today than I did back then. Okay, I I, I don't have a lot of free time, yeah. and there are a lot of other things that I want to do in life besides just play video games. But I still like playing video games, and I would like to be able to sit down with a game and in uh, you know an evening or a couple of evenings really experience the whole thing that I was I was supposed to experience. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, you hear you heard a lot of this. I mean, within this generation, but to hear this in 1989, it's just amazing. Like, I'd never thought that that sort of philosophy would come about so early. But then rereading this manifesto, if you would permit me to call it that, screed. Uh, I, I should have put hour? more ranting in there if Ranty. it was a manifesto. Okay. It should have been scrawled in marker. On no government leaders of, uh, yeah, with their right, names crossed yeah. off. No, like a lot of games are kind of aiming for the between 8 to 12 hour mark. Do you think that's like right or do you think they should just be shorter than that even? Well, it's a personal preference. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Some some people do enjoy that. And I have a friend who really is not interested in picking up any game that isn't going to give him 100 hours of play. He's a big you know RPG person and JRPG person. And if it's not 100 hours, then he really doesn't feel like it's worth his time. Hmm. Uh, but myself, eight hours on a game, that's actually a quite a long time i would i would much rather get through things uh, a lot a lot faster than that hmm. um your third point is and, and we're 23 years down the line i want to know if you think this is true i kind of do um your quote if any type of game is going to bridge the gap between games and storytelling it is most likely going to be adventure games how do you feel about this after the sort of passing of the popularity of the genre i know it's still around in various forms like telltale and whatnot but um do you feel that was true I mean, a lot of the reason people say that adventure games died was because other games sort of took on those elements that were unique to adventure games, like dialogue, um, inventory stuff, uh, character stuff. And that's sort of why, you know, people didn't just need to turn to adventure games for those elements. Do you think that adventure games sort of bridged that gap, like you said in your, uh, your original quote here? Well, as you mentioned, a lot of games have absorbed a lot of the stuff that adventure games did well, like the dialogue and the storytelling and even puzzle solving to a, to a large degree, just got absorbed you know, into other genres. But, but adventure games do offer a, a very kind of pure form of the storytelling because in an adventure game, it really is about the story. It really isn't about the puzzles. A game like Limbo, for example, Limbo is about those puzzles. Mm -hmm. It is, it is about going through and solving those little physics puzzles, and, and, and that's really what the game is. There's a story there. You, know, you can take it or you can leave it, and, and, but, but an adventure game is about the story. The, the reason that that adventure game exists is because of the story. And the puzzles, in some way, are really just put in there to slow players down you know, so they don't play the whole thing in 10 minutes. So that's why I, I do believe, I still believe, that adventure games you know, could be a really good you know, bridging of those things. Yeah, I totally agree. And I saw like LA Noir um, came out in May, huge hit, million seller, whatever. Um, was basically <laughs> whatever. whatever. <laughs> who cares? Uh, it was basically an adventure game. If you discount the optional action elements, um, mm -hmm. the thing it, w it wasn't a very good adventure game because they had to make cheating part of the mechanics. Have you played it at all? I haven't played it. Okay, no. yeah, but it was sort of like the same approach, but they really weren't trying to do it, and it felt like why didn't you guys just look look to the past? They were doing it then. You could do it again. You have way more money, right. way more people. Yeah, I wish someone would give me $100 million to make an adventure game. Wow. 
could that make would be one awesome. hell of an adventure. You've heard it. Yeah, <laughs> venture capitalists. Ron Gilbert wants your money. So, yeah, we're going to wrap up here, Ron. Is there anything you wanted to add? Any insane anecdotes you may might not share too often about the development of the game or secret knowledge? We know Dr. Fred has teleportation powers. First, right. well, first reveal of, ever. A lot of the characters in the game are were based on real people that Gary and I knew. Hmm. I actually, almost all the characters are based on real people that we knew. Even the Edisons? Even the Edison. Wow, you can't you can't say who Nurse Edna was based on. I cannot say. It was somebody's mother-in-law. I cannot say who they were based on. Wait, even the tentacles? <laughs> Help me out here. Uh, Razor was uh, Gary's girlfriend at the time. Her name was Ray. So you know uh-huh. she was she was based on right. you know, she was based on that. And like I said, Dave was you know was based on me. And did uh, you have the urge to call him Ron? Uh, no. Okay. No, he's always Dave. And actually, I, I dressed up like all of the different characters uh, at one time or another. We were going to CES to show the game. I had a, had a little outfit exactly like Sid's with you know yellow shoes and a yellow tie. And that is way cool. I, that. Uh, I never dressed up like Razor, though. And I have to ask you, why is it that only the two musicians in the game have the ability to kill a hamster? <laughs> <laughs> that, that struck me as odd. I mean, I can understand that Bernard wouldn't do it. Uh, Jeff might think it was cool. But uh, well, origi- Sid and Razor. Originally, they're... anybody could kill the hamster. Okay. And, and that was something we decided that, well, we need to put some kind of a limit right. on it. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for coming down here, Ron. Hey, it's been for like having uh, me. an interview I've always wanted to have, and uh, this is the 25th anniversary of Maniac Mansion. Unfortunately, you can't buy it anywhere. I wish you <laughs> steal could. It. Steal uh, it. Ron says steal <laughs> it. <laughs> so hey, he made the game, and uh, I can't say anything else. So uh, that's been Retronauts. Thanks a lot, Ron, for coming in. Hey, thanks uh, a lot. Thank you, Terry, for joining me today, <laughs> and sure, uh, we will see you guys next week. <laughs>